Hi, everybody. Stephanie Rupert here. Thank you for tuning in to the Meaning of Everything podcast, the podcast for actually genius ideas. Today is episode number 22X, and I am going to be talking about religious naturalism. So if you listened to episode number 22, and I most certainly hope that you did, and if you haven't, go do it. Do what makes you happy. Certainly hope that you did. If you listened, you would have heard a discussion between me and Donald Crosby, who is a fantastic, really brilliant philosopher. And he does something as a part of a field called religious naturalism. Now I've alluded to this at various points throughout the podcast, but basically today I want to sort of flush out the intellectual context that Crosby is in and give you a lay of the land of the different kinds of options that exist. If you want to be quote unquote spiritual, but not religious or scientific and spiritual, I happen to know this landscape pretty well. I studied it uh, intensively when I was doing my master's degree. So I'm going to talk about that today. And very quick housekeeping before then, I would just like to say thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many, many platforms you can listen to it on. You can listen to it on iTunes and Spotify and pretty much any podcasting app. Google Play has been recalcitrant, but I'm working on it and probably should be up by now. Also, if you prefer, you can listen on YouTube. You can watch on YouTube if you want to see any of, of my guests' faces or, our, or the visuals of our interactions. You can, always, you can always do that. I also, as I mentioned in X episodes, I give away a free book to a lucky winner, somebody who has written a review of the podcast as a gesture of gratitude for taking the time to do that. So uh, this week there was a winner. His name was Jacob Hall. and Jacob was uh, really happy to win something, which was really sweet. So I'm very happy to be able to do that for Jacob. So thank you. Thank you so much for just taking a screenshot of your review and sending it to me. That's all you have to do. And then we can chat or whatever. You just email it to tmoeverything at gmail.com. That's it, I believe, for housekeeping. This is a this is a season of, it is now springtime, this is a season of a lot of really exciting, innovative, groundbreaking, and often authoritative guests. I recently had on Ari Kruglansky, who is a well-known and deeply influential psychologist, and last podcast and next podcast I'm having on Donald Crosby, who in some ways saved my life, who changed my life irrevocably. And uh, and forthcoming, I have on Sheldon Solomon, who is a leading terror management theorist. And so uh, tis, tis a season for really, really exciting guests and conversations. And so thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll go ahead and jump into the content for today now, talk about religious naturalism. There is a lot here. But basically, you know, I've noticed that there is a lot of interest. I have seen a lot of interest in content that I share that has to do with how to be what we might call spiritual in a naturalistic way or how to do it without religion. And there, there's a lot of interest because there's a very deeply felt need. There's a very deeply felt need in our society today. There are really interesting statistics pretty high quality statistics or 
produced by an organization organization called the Pew Forum, P-E-W. And the Pew Forum does very, you know, tens of thousands of people wide surveys and has demonstrated that the number of people who identify as spiritual but not religious or as a nun, which is in a survey, nun means not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E, in a survey of, you know, which religion are you, this is the person who would check none, but the number of nuns who profess to having some sort of sacred relationship with something um, is, or having a sense of wonder about the universe has actually increased quite, quite a bit and, and is pretty high. And so there's a lot of interest here in filling that gap or changing our religiosity or something, right? There, there's, definitely, there's definitely a lot lacking in our spiritual and, and religious lives these days. And so I personally, of course, was longing for it my entire life. And Donald Crosby was a part of my journey to, to finding answers. So I want to talk a little bit about religious naturalism. Religious naturalism is, I think, one of the coolest movements in the world that nobody knows about. Religious naturalism is, as is itself as a field, is in part a field of study. Now, this isn't, it's not exclusively a field of study, but a significant piece of it is, comes from the academy. And probably somewhere around the turn of the 20th century, maybe you could point even further back to thinkers like Emerson and Thoreau. But uh, Santayana and other thinkers began this tradition of thinking about science and the natural world in in a way that that wasn't religious but that was still attempting to be emotionally fulfilling and so locusts locuses not locusts like the insect locuses loci of thought of rigorous philosophical thought of John Dewey is kind of often included and thought about as a forefather of, of this movement sprung up around the world or most specifically around America. And uh, for example, in Chicago, actually, there was quite a large contingent and, and some thinkers in New York as well. So this movement is not, old by religion's standards, but it is pretty well established uh, across the academy. And it's full of people who identify in a wide variety of ways uh, as philosophers, as Donald Crosby identifies, or as theologians. There are people who identify within the Christian tradition as theologians in this movement. Uh, and there are also people who identify as environmental activists and or as scientists who are who are participating, trying to promote these ideas. And basically what they're trying to say is, we believe that the natural world is worthy of our reverence and is the thing that we should give our spiritual energy to, in a certain sense, our emotional, spiritual, moral energy. And this is interesting because it's a little bit different from people who give their allegiance to science. There is some overlap, definitely there's overlap. And, and for some of which I, I recommend you turn to episode number six, which actually was a little bit more towards science than towards nature. I think that they all in some ways sit on a spectrum of, you know, where is their allegiance? Is it towards science or nature? But here in religious naturalism, they're saying, 
nature, nature is something that we, we don't need more than nature. Most traditional worldviews, and especially as we think of in the West with Christianity and the like, think that there is something beyond nature, that there needs to be something beyond nature for us to be spiritually whole. And that's usually thought of as a God, maybe heaven is involved, but there's angels perhaps or miracles. There needs to be something beyond nature that helps us make sense of our existence. And these thinkers say, actually, you know what? Maybe there doesn't. Maybe we just come from a history. Maybe we just come from a tradition of philosophy and religion that makes us think that this is the way that it has to be done. It makes us think that all of our meaning and value and solace and hopes about life and death and fears and all of these different things are salvation. Maybe these things must be pinned on a God who sits in a chair in the sky or who is some other kind of being. We think that this is how it has to be, but these thinkers say, actually, no. You have to do a little bit of work to get you, wrap your brain around it, but you can actually have an equally satisfying religious experience if you just make nature your whole world and don't reach for gods or other kinds of explanations or, or entities. And that's a really powerful idea. And it's actually, it's possible to do it in a wide, a wide variety of ways. And I've made it not, not just a hobby, but also part of my career to explore these ways. I think it's very important. Now they're limited insofar as they're not springing up. They're not like, Black Lives Matter, or uh, there's a movement on climate right now. What is it called? Oh, I don't remember. Uh, but it, it's there are these movements that have sort of sprung up about around causes, right? Occupy Wall Street uh, d decades ago, however long ago that was. Uh, there are these movements that are springing up, and there have also been, of course, some kind of more spiritual movements in in recent years. For example, the Unitarian Universalist Church has sprung up as a naturalistic religion in, in a certain sense. You don't necessarily have to be a naturalist to be in the Unitarian Universalist Church, but by and large, it, it is naturalistically inclined. It is not necessarily attached to any particular metaphysical view of the world. Um, and so these, these movements have sprung up, but religious naturalism, I mentioned at the beginning, is something that is born of the academy. It's rooted in philosophy and theology. And so it's, it's not grassroots. So it has, it has really far to go. And there are a lot of people working on it. There is this concept called the evolutionary epic that is often important to religious naturalists, although not to Donald Crosby, interestingly. Um, and the evolutionary epic is basically saying that evolution can serve as our creation myth. And it is capable of stimulating wonder and reverence and is something for which we should be very grateful and bow our heads to. And it definitely comes with all sorts of pain and struggle, but that is something that is just a, a part of life. And Crosby would argue an important part of life without which uh, we would actually have nothing, which is interesting. Do tune in next week. And so there's this, there's this idea that this, this myth is, is serviceable, you know, but it's, it's being promoted by some people and being told as big history. And it's 
it's, it could take a really, it could take a really long time to, to really develop. And it's a set of ideas attached to a scientific vision of the world. And it's a set of ideas that really denies the historical roots we have in and the tendencies we have to like ideas about transcendence and God and humans being separate from nature and above nature. And, and so it's, it's got a really far way to go, but by and large, religious naturalism is the idea that religion is, doesn't necessarily have to be about those transcendent things. And we can actually be spiritually fulfilled by the natural world. Now, I don't have a ton of time, uh, but I will briefly talk a little bit about how some of these visions work. So next week, you can hear uh, everything, definitely a lot more about Donald Crosby's vision and how unique and powerful it is. There are many other thinkers. Uh, for example, there is a woman named Ursula Goodenough, who I am trying to get on this podcast. And she wrote a book, a really well-performing book called The Sacred Depths of Nature. Now, Goodenough is a biologist. And she actually, when she was in college, so she had always had somewhat of a romantic view of nature and had adored it. And then in college, she began taking courses in the sciences. And then she realized she had this experience of, of science robbing her of the inherent meaning that she had felt in the world. And she all of a sudden felt this mechanistic scientific view of the world, stripping the romance from the stars. She recounts a time at which she was laying in her sleeping bag, looking up at the stars and feeling nihilism washing over her because the scientific worldview was so empty. Right. And I think that this, this is something that a lot of people in our society really fear that a scientific worldview is, is empty and will take your meaning from you. And this is, I think, broadly actually distributed around our culture, the idea that science strips, you know, it threatens our religions and it strips our meaning and it strips all of these things that we really, really like, precisely because it's just all about data and facts. And what we really need to do is understand that just because we have data and facts doesn't mean that our, our meaning and purpose have to go away. Science doesn't have to take these things away. Science has become this huge monolithic set of concepts and powers in our culture, but it's actually mostly a way for empirically testing what happens in the world. And by empirically, I mean just observing. You just observe the world and you take some data and you look in a microscope. And, and that's, really, that's really what science is. And so we can have meaning and purpose. And good enough, Ursula, good enough, after this experience of despair and anxiety and nihilism decided to stay in the sciences because she thought that it was an important avenue to discover what could possibly be true about the world and slowly over time developed ways of interpreting science that could help her really experience reverence for the world and nature and really feel solace about the limitations of what it means to be human, about dying, about weakness, about loss, all of these certain things. And so uh, I do recommend picking up the sacred depths of nature. I'll share really briefly an idea in it that I have personally found really powerful and, and really helpful for thinking about death in a naturalistic way. 
So something good enough is a biologist and something that she has studied and thought about a lot is the way that cells work and why cells work. So there was once a time on earth, says science, says evolution, that in which all life was single celled. All life was just one cell hanging out by itself, bumping into other cells. That was just how it went. And then there became the ability to light for life to be multicellular, which is to say that and you could have an organism, not just a cell, but an organism, two cells or 200 cells, and then 2,000 and 2 million and 2 billion and, and so on and so forth, right? We're gigantic now compared to cells. Gigantic, truly. And But what was really interesting about this development from this shift from a single-celled organism to multicellular organisms, this, these rich life worlds that we see, our rich lives, right? What the difference that happened is that life evolved the ability to metabolize oxygen. So oxygen actually didn't used to be the basis of metabolism. Single-celled organisms, uh, actually oxygen, it was, it was not a, a part of that ecosystem. And then, and these single-celled organisms, what's very interesting about them is the way that they reproduce is, is different from the way that multicellular organisms and especially creatures like us reproduce, they will, they can split into two. That's like cells, right? And maybe you remember looking at slides at some point in your life or photos and videos. Now you can watch videos of, of this sort of thing on, on YouTube, but cells will, will just split apart. You know, that's, that's, that's what they do. And in that sense, they are immortal, right? Because they never die. And they never have to die. They can die from other outside causes, but they don't have death programmed into them. Now, the reason we have death programmed into us is because we're, we're bigger than them. It's because we became multicellular. Because multicellular organisms needed oxygen, which is a very potent fuel source. Oxygen is, in fact, arguably what caused multicellular, right? This is what causes multicellular life. And so they we could grow. But oxygen is very fascinating. It is the thing that gives us life, but it is also because of the way it metabolizes. It is the thing that it ultimately destroys our, you know, our tissues and, and we die, right? We have these metabolisms and our re reproductive systems. We have some cells that, that don't really die, right? We have these reproductive, little reproductive cells that are a part of what is called the germline. And these are the ones that are constantly being carried forward into our offspring and creating new cells. And this whole organism around these little reproductive cells is, is designed as, as a shell for them. And we go about, we walk around the world and we metabolize our oxygen and we breathe our air and we, we provide a home for these reproductive cells that the germline that just go on ad infinitum and we die. But we get to live precisely because we have developed this distinction between the germline cells and, and the rest of us, the soma. 
in this way, good enough teaches us that in this perspective, the reason we have to die is because we get to live, right? We don't, we can't have it any other way. We can't be like the immortal single cell organisms. If we want to have life, then we, we have to die. Just, just, I think it's a really beautiful way to think about it and it can help encourage appreciation and gratitude for the circumstances that we're in for what has happened over the course of the last few billion years to give rise to this life, you know, and, and precisely all of the tiny, minuscule, incredibly complex and trillions of things that have, that have had to happen to go into that. And, and death is the price that we pay for being able to be alive, which I just, I don't know. I find that be very, to be very powerful. So maybe I'll just leave this at that. I have, I have shared a lot in this podcast, so I hope it has been as good for you as it has for me. I'm very excited next week to continue with Donald Crosby. So do please, do please tune in and it will be, it will be a little bit, it'll be a lot like today. So I anticipate, I anticipate a lot of enjoyment. Keep me posted on how you're feeling. I would be more than happy to hear it. This has been the meaning of everything. I am Stephanie Rupert. You know where to find me. Thank you so much for tuning in and I will see you next time.